0: Blessed be his name. All right, folks. Well, we're starting up now in this parashah of shift And uh, we're kind of picking up from last week, Bayeshla. Uh, and it was an amazing parsha, right? We saw that was the finalizing of the story of Jacob. And what I like about this, I don't know if you noticed what the Torah does. It's kind of cyclical, the, the events that are happening. Uh, we see the cyclical events in the life of Abraham, what Isaac, Jacob, and now this week, by Yeshef, we pick up with Joseph. And we're going to see a lot of similarities between the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going to see that in the life of Joseph. Now, you may be asking, what's the point of that? Well, it's very important for us. Because, you see, if you notice this lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Yosef has a really spiritual meaning. It is the people of the faith who are carrying on the faith of Abraham and moving that along throughout the generations. So if you are a believer of the Mashiach, then guess what? You've been grafted into the faith of Abraham, thus now you have a responsibility just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and as we're going to read here today, Yosef. Folks, there's just so much about the Joseph saga that it's gonna take us years year to really cover this entire uh, story of Joseph, but we're gonna start very small, and today I wanna to talk a little bit about the life of Joseph as it begins, and how is that prophetic for the Mashiach, and that is prophetic for the Mashiach, how does that relate to us today? As the people of the Mashiach, amen? So, vayashev, it literally means to dwell. And it's interesting that this parasha does not open up with the life of Joseph. Interesting. The very first verse is not about, okay, and his is the life of Joseph immediately, but rather it opens up with a statement that I think is very important for us to understand. So, before we do that, let's find out what is vayashev, and it's the word yeshiv which literally means to sit, to remain, to settle, to essentially dwell. Hebraically speaking, Yeshef literally <laughs> means like you're assimilating. It okay, you mean to assimilate. You're becoming part of the culture. You are dwelling in the place. Now, why does this parsha opens with vayashev? Because it's ending with the story of Jacob. The promise was fulfilled. Remember in the Sulam, when we cover the Sulam, the ladder, what was the promise? That he will go into exile, but that Hashem will help him to bring him back into the land. And we see in the fulfillment, and the opening of this, of this Torah portion, Vayasheh. Yaakov Vayasheh. Jacob dwell on the land. In other words, it was good. He struggled with Esau, the angel elevated him to the new name of Israel. He became an overcomer, and as he overcame I don't know if you see the prophetic picture of this, as he overcome, what was the result of that overcoming? Now Jacob, Vayeshef, dwell in the land. See what is teaching us right in the opening of this parasha is that in order for us to dwell in the land. We need to become overcomers. We need to become like Israel, that nature of Israel, in order to dwell in the land. So let's look at this, to, by the shift said to dwell. Genesis 31 says, Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. It's very interesting because the Humash has a little bit of something to say about this, which comes in agreement with what the Father was revealing to me is that even though Jacob dwelt in the land, as it says, notice what it says. In end, Yaakov lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Jacob, even though he made it to the promised land, just as the angel promised him, he was still considered a sojourner in the land. In other words, he still had people there that by the, by the human understanding and the human eye, had higher precision than him, so to speak. But he, because he was a sojourner in the land, but he was still in the land like Abraham. You know, Abraham had to pay for a burial place when the land was supposedly his. What is this all about? We have to see this and really read in between the lines so we can understand, not just read, stop and understand what the Torah is speaking. Jacob is now dwelling in this land, but he still, he is, the head, really, technically, spiritually, but he's still the tail in the eyes of human flesh. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. You see? That's why he is in the land. Yay, but I'm still a sojourner, mm-hmm. so to speak. So let's look and see what Hazal, the Humash has to say. Look, it says, in contrast to Esau, who preferred to leave his native land, they say, In favor of one where he and his heirs will be masters. See, Esau chose to opt out of the what? Of the birthright so that they can become masters in this world. That's what the Chazal is saying, basically. You know, and it is true. It stands true the opposite of that. Jacob chose to cling to the birthright, but not to become a master in this world because the opposite stands. If Esau was a master, and he opt out of the birthright, then it is true that Jacob clinged to the birthright, but didn't become a master, so to speak. Look, Jacob chose to live, look at this, as an alien, it says, in the land that he had been promised him. So he chose that, folks. It is teaching us something, Hazar is revealing something very important in here, We have a choice how we choose to live our lives, folks. Jacob chose this life. Kind of like you chose the Messiah. You chose this walk, didn't you? Nobody put a, hopefully nobody put a gun to your head and said that you have to do it. It is a choice that you make, folks. This is the reason why believers rejoice in the trials. We rejoice in the trials because we choose the trials. The trials don't catch us by surprise. We go into this fully disclosure, folks, unless you are hearing into a prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, we are coming to this with a full understanding and with the yoke that it comes with. And we have to accept that yoke mm-hmm. above all. So it says in here that he chose to do this. Amen? Mm-hmm. This was the fulfillment of God's prophecy to Abraham that his progeny would be aliens and it was a step towards the fulfillment of the rest of that prophecy that they would what go <laughs> on to inherit the land so this is all part again of the prophecy that was given in the Sulon. so look genesis 23 4 says this is what abraham said i am a what a sojourner and a foreigner among you he says give me property among you for a burying place that i may bury my dead out of my sight So this is just kind of a reminder in here of what the parasha is opening up with is the understanding that even when you make it to the promise, folks, in this world, even if you make it to the promise, you're still a sojourner because we are sojourners no matter where we go. I don't care if you go to Israel. I don't care if you go to Canada, Cuba, Puerto Rico, doesn't matter where you go. You are a sojourner in this world, folks. You're going to see the same, and you're going to go through the same spiritual warfare no matter where you decide to park your life, amen? Mm-hmm. This opens up now for the story of Joseph. Why? Very important. We're going to see the, the, the similarities of Jacob's life in the life of Joseph. So now we start now with the Joseph saga. The Jacob saga ended now, and we pick up now with his son, one of the seed of his son that came through who? Rachel, right? And now we're going to see the promise and the fulfillment of a lot of these things for the Mashiach ben Yosef and understanding this Mashiach. It's important to understand the function of the two Messiahs so that we can understand how to uh, address our lives today. So uh, Genesis 37:2 says, These are the generations of Jacob, it says, okay? Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilha." Zipfah, his father's wife's, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. The very opening in here is a lot of full of prophecy was taking place and things that you guys need to understand. Now, many people today have interpreted uh, Joseph as one who's haughty and proud. I don't know if you guys heard that interpretation out there today. I don't really support that. I don't see it in the scriptures, and we're going to see why. Okay, uh, we're going to see that really the, the character of Joseph, really, it's an amazing character that I think we all need to learn a little bit about. And there's not an ounce of haughtiness in this man. And I'm going to show you why. So it opens up by saying this. Look, in the Hebrew, it says something a little bit different than what we read in the English. It says in Hebrew, So it's talking about the generation Ben. Son of Sheva is Reshana, 17 years, right? Hayah Roet Echav Batson. This is very interesting because the very uh, parasha opens up by saying, if you go into English, it says that Joseph, being 17-year-old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers, right? But in the Hebrew it says, Hayah Roet Echav Batzon. That word in there that's very really interesting is Roe. Joseph was a Roe. If you go to Israel, you speak to any Jewish person, you mention the name Roe, <coughs> they understand what that means. And Roe is the one who feeds, the one who leads. It's essentially a shepherd. It's saying that Joseph was a shepherd, basically, okay? But look what it says Roe et echa bazon. The Aleph Tab is connected to the Echa, that is from Achi, his brothers, right? Batson is talking about sheep and goats. He was a shepherd with his brothers, the sheep and the goats. <laughs> That's where the Aleph Tab comes in. And the Batson is sheep and goats combined together. This is really basic because now we start to see a clear picture that Joseph, first of all, is a roe. But when we talk about a roe, it's not just feeding. Now, it says in here to feed, and that is true. The roe supposed to feed the what? The batson, the, batso, the sheeps and the goats. But this process of the feeding doesn't always look so good. Look, it means to lead to God. But look, it also means to crush and to break. Because in the leading, in the process, sometimes you do get crushed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do, are broken in this process. Because let's face it, the shepherd is only going to feed the best, hopefully, the best food for their best son. And that food doesn't, you know, like the spinach doesn't always taste so good. It. Now, how many of us as kids love spinach? You know, you're weird. So, <laughs> but you see my point You know, I'm going to have to pick another one Beats Kale kale. Yeah, kale. 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 My but that's my point it, The food hard. is not always something that we like And we enjoy, but it's good for us Right? Mm-hmm. And what does the shepherd do? He shoves it down your throat I remember, <laughs> I remember. I remember my mom <clears throat> And my aunt Used to shove Oil, fish oil down my throat. Almost
1: cute. <laughs> Open up.
0: <laughs> it's good for you. It was caught. Yeah, Most fish. nasty thing. making <laughs> me want to throw up. Couldn't get the taste out of my tongue for weeks. <laughs> but that's my point. It was good. It's something that is good for you, right? That we all can relate to the things that are always good for you that we need to feed on. We don't always enjoy, do we? That's why this roe. Eh, being crushed or breaking carries that understanding that this feeling is not always going to be something that we like. We need to come to terms with that and accept it and, and you know, take that fish oil and eat that kale with gladness, even if you don't like it. But look, it says in here, uh, so he says that he was a young one. So he was a roe, who was actually young, okay? This presents a big problem, folks. A big problem in here because now we're really getting into the aspects of dealing with your own strongholds. You see, the brothers were older than him. So in their minds, we're older, you don't tell us what to do.
1: Hmm.
0: You see, that's why the scripture mentioned that he was a what? A Na'an. A Na'an is a young one. So they're just looking at this guy like, Really? You want to tell us about shepherding? We know more than you do. That's the whole thing, and you know, it's the same thing with Yeshua, when he came to preach the word. Yeshua was in his early 30s, according to history. Maybe late 20s, early 30s, maybe at the most. And the people that he was dealing with, the Sahedrin group that he was dealing with, these were rabbis who were probably well into the 60s, 70s, and maybe even 80s. So think about it, you have a young guy who's coming up to these elders who are in the 60s and 70s who've been in the, you know, that they're considered the sages of that time, the Pharisees, the learned, who have been in the word for years and years and years and years and years, they gray beard, and he comes as young, we're trying to tell them well, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is wrong. How does that sit in your stomach? <laughs> think about it. It's the same way when uh, Josiah became king of Israel. How do you think the people felt about that? Yeah, he was very old and wise, right?
1: <laughs>
0: well, one thing he was was wise, you know. But that's my point. It's that sometimes the father will get us all our comfort zone. It says, so it says that he was young. Look how it says in there: the Aleph Tav That's Bilha. Be bene Zilfa. They say Aleph connected with the sons of Zilfa and Bilma. It says that he was a shepherd among all of them it's teaching us in here is that Mashiach will be a shepherd not just to the Jewish people, but that he will be a shepherd to also the strangers because this would have been the, daughter, uh, the sons from the what? From the concubines, Zipa and Bilma. So that's, you know, again, they weren't necessarily direct lineage in, in their view. It wasn't like you were not their direct lineage from our father, so you're from the, basically from the handmaid. So they would have been viewed as second class, so to speak, not necessarily the first class. But it says that he was still a et bene et zilfa which is the wives of his father, Avi. But now it says after that, it says in here, or Yosef et dibartam ra'ah. This is very interesting because it says that he came in now, he was brought in, Yosef, Aleph Tav, he brought in the words of the Aleph Taf. And what were the words of the Aleph Tav? It says, Ra'a el He brought, it says, an evil report. Now, many of us might say, well, maybe he was gossiping. You know, it's Lashon Hara. Well, let's look at this, for folks, because first of all, it doesn't say anything about Lashon Hara in here. It says that he brought <laughs> in the Ed Devaritam. That is the words of the Aleph Tav, specifically. And what was Joseph in charge? Remember, Joseph is the what now? The, the, he's the roe now. And what is the job of the roe? The job of the roe is to bring the in. The father had entrusted Joseph to go out and look after his brothers and bring word back to the father. In other words, the son was entrusted with the words of the father to handle the flock. See a lot of smiles. Exactly, Yeshua. Mm -hmm. This is the whole point, folks. But it's not just Yeshua. If it's Yeshua, then there's something here for us. How about you? Have you been entrusted with the words of the Father to go out and bring report? I will submit to you, yeah, you have. What report are you bringing? It says that he brought a report that was ra'ah. There was that. Look, we see something similar in 1 Samuel. Look, 1 Samuel 2.22 says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Why is it that Eli heard what his sons were doing? Because somebody was bringing a what? A report. Was that Lashon hara? No. They were doing their jobs. It was probably the very priests that were telling them, the council was probably seeing and observing what was taking place, and they were the one that told Eli, you know what? What your sons are doing, it's not kosher. This has got to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Look. So he says that he hold heard, and he kept hearing that all his sons were doing in Israel, and how they lay with the woman who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Can you imagine the disgrace? And we think that that's just a new thing. No, folks, this has been going on from the, in the beginning of time. They were doing this at the entrance. That's like somebody coming into a church, and they were just grabbing women to,
1: yep. that's horrible.
0: Look, and he said to them, why do you do such things? He told the sons, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it is not good. Report, he says. That's exactly what Joseph did with his brothers. He brought in a report that was not good, essentially. So he says in here, it's not a good report that I hear the people of Hashem spreading abroad. John 7, 7, look what it says. The the world cannot hate you. Who's speaking here? Yeshua. Yeshua. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why does the world hate him? Because is he being a gossiper? Because he was bringing a bad report to the father regarding the flock, just like Joseph. Look, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it's works at what? Evil. Evil. Okay, if he's testifying, that means that he's bringing a report. And the report is, as he says, evil. So because he's bringing a report that is evil, what does scripture in Johanan chapter 7 says? It says that the world now hates him. We're going to find out in here that the, the brothers of Joseph ended up what? Hating him. Look, First Corinthians five, 1 Corinthians 5.1 says, it is actually reported, you, mean you see a New Testament reference in here also, after Yeshua's death and resurrection, it is actually reported, this is Apostle Paul, that there is sexual immorality among you. This is Paul speaking now, Rashaul, and of a kind that it has not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man and his father's wife, has his father's wife. This is amazing that he says, we don't even hear this among the pagans. The things that we're hearing among you guys, we don't even hear that among the pagans, so to speak. But the question instead, the focus in here is not so much about what they did, but rather the report. Rashaul heard that the report was given. So we see that there's an accountability that comes with a what? With a roe. As a shepherd, as someone who's leading, even within your family's fathers, you have a responsibility as a roe to bring about that report. Not to cover it, not to say I didn't see that but to rather bring it up and report it and assess the situation. So moving on in here, Genesis 37:3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. It's very interesting how it says in here in the English translation, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. <clears throat> I think it's kind of like mistranslated that more part because in Hebrew it says, Ahav Et Yosef okay, right off the bat Ve Yisrael is saying "In Israel love Aletab Yosef, the Aletab Yosef, there's the connection of the Mashiach it says Israel the father loved Joseph, it doesn't say that he loved more Joseph it just says that Israel loved Joseph, look it says it says in here that he loved he loved Joseph from, um, from all his sons. From among all his sons, he said he loved Joseph. It doesn't say necessarily he loved him more. It's just making out the point that from among all the 12 that he got, all the kids that they had, Joseph was the one they loved. We're going to see the prophetic meaning of it because it says that all the time, Joseph, we see something similar with Esau and Jacob, right? <coughs> what was the difference? Hashem says that he hated Jacob. I'm mean, sorry, Esau. But that he loved Jacob. The sages connect this, folks, but this word ahaf is to understand the word half has a lot to do with not just love, but it's loving righteousness. <coughs> so when it's talking about that he loved Joseph, from Micol among all the brothers, it's Joseph stands out because of righteousness. In other words, he loves Joseph's righteousness. Right. Not necessarily that he has an affection more for Joseph and he hates all the rest of the kids, but rather he understands the righteousness of Joseph and he understands that this is the seed that's going to carry out the next lineage in here or carry the lineage of righteousness. So he loves what? righteousness of Joseph. When you see and hear the word a half, you got an aleph, hay, and a vav, right? I mean, I'm in a bait. If you take this hay away, what do you have? Uh-huh. Av. What is av? Uh-huh. Father. If you put the hay in the middle, you got love. What is the difference between this and this, all these three? What stands in the middle is the man's with his hands up. That is the revealing of the grace of Hashem. That is love. See, that's why it connects. That's why it says in here, I have it I believe personally, personally I believe that Israel saw this. Jacob saw this. The the prophecy of the seed of Joseph will come out of that. It will be the Mashiach ben Yosef because it is through the Mashiach ben Yosef that redemption comes to the world. It's through the love of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Is that the love of the that the connection of Israel comes together, the gathering of Israel. So that's why it says that he loved Joseph. The righteousness of Joseph. So it says in here, That is the, the uh, of his old age. Zachan means old. It says that because of that, he he made to him. This tunic. Now, this tunic connects with the love. Now we know why it says that he loved. See, you got to see the connection in here in Hebrew. Because it says that he loved, but why does he love him? The answer is given over here. He made him the tunic of, or the translation says, the many colors. Okay, not necessarily. This fascin uh, does not necessarily mean colors. Fasim literally means it's a long, something that comes down to your ankles, like stripes. Now, it could have been colors, okay? But the idea is that's not specifying necessarily colors. It's just a tunic that was long, its stripe comes down to your ankle. So it was down to here. It was a glorious tunic. Look, that's why it says ketone. That means a tunic, a cloak that was long. Now, in order to understand why is it that he loved Joseph's righteousness, the tunic comes into place, and understanding what the tunic symbolizes. So it says, Hazak says about the long robe, such a tunic was a mark of leadership. Very important. See, when when Israel, uh, Jacob made this tunic for Joseph, okay, it was not just a tunic. It was not like, oh, wow, cool, nice tunic. No, if they, the, the tribes understood, whoa, we have a new boss. That was a mark. It's kind of like the signet. It was a mark, the staff of authority. So it says in here, such tunic was a mark of leadership. For after Reuben discredited himself by tampering with Jacob's bed, Jacob elevated Joseph to the status of the firstborn. You see, they knew that because that tunic should have been Reuben's. Reuben was expecting the tunic. And when they saw that Joseph has it, not only was Reuben probably very, very angry, but probably the rest of the tribes were also moved by this. Why? Because you see, here's the problem we have a righteous leader. And if we have a righteous leader, that means that we're going to be accountable now for the things that we do, it's going to be exposed. See, that's, that's why, folks, we got to understand this both in the context of the messianic prophecy, but also in the context for us today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to repeat myself over and over. You're not going to be liked. Mm-hmm. This mindset needs to change of being like because we, unfortunately, over 1,700 years of false doctrine... Has led us to believe that the world is gonna welcome us. And we think masses, and we think big, and we think, you know, big corporate, thousands of people applauding. Folks, that's a dream. The reality is, no, it was never that way. They hated the prophets, they spat on their faces. Because the world doesn't receive the truth. There's the difference. Look, so it says in here, So he was elevated to the firstborn and made him the tunic to symbolize the new position in the family. So now that people understand that this Joseph, because up to now, well, Jacob was sending him out. So it was like, okay, probably it's one of those things that maybe father's using him temporarily just for a few days to lure over us. But now when they see the tunic, this is official. You've been promoted. You know, It's no longer hope for them. The hope is gone at this point. So look what the sages say. Jacob's favoritism was based on Joseph's spiritual and intellectual superiority over his brothers. This had to do with the spiritual superiority because he understood that Joseph was a righteous man. And the brothers, unfortunately, were not living up to core. It's not like uh, Jacob decided to say, well, I'm just going to go ahead and choose Joseph just because. It was because of the righteousness that he carried, folks. Let me put it this way. The brothers can be alluded to Esau. Esau and Jacob. You guys remember, we just went through the story. Okay, Jacob will be considered Joseph in this story. And Esau will be considered the brothers, basically. They didn't care about the covenant. They didn't care about the birthright. All they care about was was in this world today, now here. They didn't care if they forsake the spiritual position, and they didn't care about their faith either. So, for the same reason, God proclaimed his love for Israel, they say, you see, and his hatred for Esau. And Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael, the same reason. It had nothing to do with, well, you look funny, I don't like you. No, it had to do with the spiritual weight, with the spiritual leadership that these men will carry. Similarly, Jacob favored Joseph. In all these cases, they were expressing the truth that the object of their favor was the authentic what guardian of their spiritual heritage. That was the reason why they were chosen. That's the reason why he said they he, he Israel half yourself, et yourself. That's why he loved Joseph because he saw Joseph's righteousness. Amen. Look, First King nineteen nineteen says, and he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Saphat who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen went in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. This is very similar to the cloak of Joseph. Elijah passing casting this cloak was symbolizing now, giving him the new position, the leadership position, of carrying that spiritual weight. So we see this is the reason why he threw the cloak. And why is it that when he threw the cloak... Uh, that Elijah was like, oh, okay. He already knew what was going on. He didn't ask, wait, why did you throw this garment to me?
1: <laughs>
0: he didn't sit there and question it like, what's going on? He already knew what was going on because this was already understood back then with the mantle that you passed on. So Elisha passed and passed on this garment to him. Look, John 5, 20, for the father loves the son. This is what we're talking about, Joseph in Israel. It says that Israel loved what Joseph. We see him here in John five five twenty, where Yeshua says, "For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these He will show him, so that all you may marvel." The works of the Father that He was imparting upon Joseph—I mean, upon Yeshua, basically son of Joseph, right? was what the revelation that the people were seeing. His works that he was revealing to the people were essentially the works of the Father. That's why he said, why do you ask to see the Father? Whoever seen me has seen the Father. Because he was literally proclaiming, he was was literally that essence (laughs) of the Father, showing the works of the Father. So look, John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me. Why does the father love me? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Why did did Israel love Joseph? Because Joseph was willing to lay down his life. For the sake of what? Of the faith of Israel. See, the answer is right here. For this reason, he says, the father loves me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. This is what I have received from my father, he says. Joseph, just like Yeshua, laid down his life, folks, for the betterment and to continue the faith of Israel. It was a choice that he made to do this. Even though his brothers were coming against him. And, you know, Scripture doesn't even reveal the animosity that was probably there amongst the brothers with him. You know, the little smart remarks that get to you every day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Think about it. The, you know, the Bible isn't reveal. But we know that that essence was there. He didn't only have one brother to worry about. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can just imagine how this must have looked. So moving on in here, Genesis 37.4. But when his brother saw, now he's going out to, to check on his brothers. The, if we read prior to that, Israel had entrusted him and said, I need you to go and check on your brothers to check on the welfare of your brothers. So the father commissioned the son to go check on the welfare of the brothers. That's what's happening in here. It's exactly what Yeshua did. The father sent him to check on the welfare of Israel. So what happens? But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they what? They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. It's amazing. That's why Yeshua was so loved, wasn't it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> look,
0: John one one. look what it says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Let's go back in here. Genesis 37.11. But when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Do you see the connection in here with this in John 1.11? 1, 1, that it says that he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Did the brothers receive Joseph? No. Any more than Israel received Yeshua the Messiah. So look, but to all who receive him, who believe his name, he gave them the right to become what? Children of God. See, folks, no man tells you whether you are part of the tribes of Israel now. Because in here, in Genesis, I'm sorry, John 1, it says that to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right that authority and that right has been given to you by God himself. You have the right. you are considered the children of God. John 15:24 If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, this is the way he says in here, they would have not been guilty of sin. but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that it is written And their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And we read in Genesis 37 that it says that the brothers hated Joseph now. What did Joseph do to them? Nothing. They technically hated Joseph for no reason. For the same reason, what did Yeshua did wrong to them? Nothing. They hated Yeshua really technically for no reason. We see now the connection in here with the Mashiach, Yeshua of Nazareth, That is the suffering servant and Joseph. Very, very prophetic for us today as we are to be in his image. So now comes the dreams, Joseph's dreams. And the prophetic dreams in here, there's two dreams that he shares with him that are very prophetic. And we're going to cover the first one. And it's really, really amazing. Look, Genesis 37, 5 and 8. Now Joseph had a dream, it says. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Okay? He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaf gather around it and bow down to my sheaf. <laughs> so now it starts with the whole thing with the sheaf. Now, this is a really prophetic meaning of the sheaves in here and what it really all entails, but I want to cover, before we get into the sheath, I want to cover something. That is verse 6. Verse 6 says, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Bad interpretation. See, this is why a lot of people think that Joseph was very haughty. Because it almost sounds like he's saying, hey, everybody, come here. hear my dream. Y'all going to bow down to me. That's not what he said, folks. Let's see this, how he said it. The reality in Hebrew. In Hebrew, he says, "Va'yomer aleihem." So he said to them, Elahim. <laughs> it says, "Shimua na ha chalom, hazeh yer chalometi. Shimua na." What is Shimua na? It's from Shema. He's saying to hear and to obey. He's saying. But the na is what really us is the, the connection with the na is that gives it the understanding. Shemua na literally means he was saying, please, I pray, he says to them. He wasn't being haughty. He was actually saying, please, and saying, please, I pray. That's the proper interpretation. Please, hear this, shemua, and I pray that you will receive it, basically. So... We can see the humbleness and the tone that he's speaking in here. So he's saying, Shemuana hachola hacholam, or halom, which is the dream. Now, the word halom, and we talked about this in the week that we did the Sulam, halom means a dream, but the word halom also carries the understanding of a vision. Halom can be understood as a prophecy. Because prophecy, I delivers, prophecy, I delivers sometimes through the vehicles of vision. So that's very understood. So Halom carries a lot of weight of actually envisioning something. So maybe he did dream, but also it can be understood as he envisioned this. So he is saying, "Please hear me, please I pray about this vision or this prophetic vision that I have to share with you." Does that ring a bell? Because it rings a bell to me about the prophets of Israel who came to Israel and they say, Shemua na, Here is the word of Hashem from a vision. How many times we read the vision of Zechariah, the vision of Obadiah. And most of the prophecies, it opens up by saying the vision of the prophet. The vision of carries the same understanding of halom joseph is acting now as a prophet as well Well, wasn't that yeshua also a prophet Mm -hmm. they say isn't this the prophet they talked about him as the prophet as well it's one of the titles that he had did he deliver a prophetic word Mm -hmm. yeah he came in that of the spirit of elijah so we can see here that now shemua now Joseph is actually given prophetic word to who? To the brothers. This is what we're going with this so far. He is a righteous man going to Israel, delivering a word of truth through a vision. Sounds like the prophets to me. Look, so he says, please, I pray. Genesis 37, 58. His brother said to him, are you and thee?" To reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. For his dreams and for his words. How often do we read in the in the Bible. That the people love the prophets. <laughs> they love the words of the prophets. Thank you for that beautiful word. Can I hear it again? <laughs> this is what it's saying. They hated him because of the words that he delivered. Look. Let's talk about the sheep's so we can see this two prophetic <laughs> things about these sheep's that's very important. Because remember Joseph had two dreams. And in both dreams they bow down to him so they're not really not the same. They carry a different prophetic meaning. <laughs> let's start with the sheep's. The Midrash says this folks. The symbolism of the sheep's implied that to Joseph that his brothers will bow to him because of their need for grain. Now, that is true. That's why it's the sheaves. Because, you know, we're going to find out later that, yeah, they are going to bow down to him. Mm-hmm. Because they need food. So, even in this word that he gave him in here, this mm-hmm. dream, it prophetically became true like a couple chapters later or even a <coughs> chapter later. So, let's see him here. It says this. That they gather around indicated that they surround him like subjects surrounding a king. <laughs> That's an understatement. Because we're going to find out that he's going to be the what? The ruler of Egypt, okay? Joseph's chief stood up of his own accord in the middle of the scene of his dream, implying that his rise to power would not be because of his brothers, essentially. In other words, his brothers are not the ones who are going to enthrone him, or put him enthrone throne, rather. Look. And it remains standing, symbolizing that he will remain in power for a very long time, according to the Midrash. Indeed, Joseph's Missouri of Egypt for 80 years, the longest reign recorded in scripture. Wow. According to the Midrash, he reigned over Egypt for 80 years. Wow. It's amazing. The longest reign that they said it was recorded in the history of the, of the scriptures. So that's, I found that to be very interesting because we see that actually the, what the Midrash is sharing in here and what Hazal is, it's, it's actually sharing with us. It's something that we can read, not necessarily the 80 years, but we can read that they did bow to him, and we can read that they did to literally give knee in order to what? To eat. The sheep symbolizes food. Now, with that said, folks, we also, something that I saw, and I'm glad I found reference to it, what I saw in here was the resurrection. Very, very amazing. And it's amazing because it says that the sheep stood up, think First thing that came to my mind was the scripture, and, and it's amazing that I found it a reference to it. But look, Messiah—they have uh, the interpretation that they give is what the Father had given me, and I wanted to share with you guys. But they put in much better words that so you can understand. So the sheeps in here—they say the single sheep—I mean, I'm, I'm sorry—the single upright sheep with all other sheeps around alludes specifically to the resurrection of Yeshua. Our master's resurrection coincided with the Levitical festival of the barley omer. Remember, you are to take the sheaf, the first sheaf, to the temple of the first fruits. That's the first thing that came to my mind was Leviticus, the sheaf of the way of offering. So look what he says in here. I'm so glad when I find something like this. It says in here that our master's resurrection coincided with the Levitical feast of the barley omer, a festival on which the priesthood harvested it and offer a single sheaf of barley in the temple. Okay. They presented it before the Lord as a wave offering. The Torah prohibits using the rest of the harvest. They cannot bring the rest of the harvest. They can only bring that one sheaf to the temple. The rest cannot be brought yet. Unto the priest presents the first sheaf before the Lord. On the same day Messiah rose as the first fruit of the resurrection. In this respect, the single sheaf that rose up and stood erect represents the resurrected Messiah as the wave offering. Because remember, it stood up <laughs> and it remained up. Meaning, as he resurrected, he resurrected forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amen? So, the 11 other sheaves that bow before Joseph, she signified all Israel as represented by the 11 disciples who remain to witness the resurrected Amen. Messiah. And we Amen. see that the, 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 the disciples did bow down to him after he resurrected. It's amazing that this sheaf in here, because of the connection of the barley of Leviticus, the feast of first fruits, the connection of, there of that, that sheaf is the representation, the representation of the resurrection. Now, this is amazing. This connection is really, really amazing. Because look, John 6.35 says, Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. The one whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst forever. Amen. Because it's showing that the barley, he is that first sheep that gives the satisfaction. Remember, this will be grounded up later and made into loaves where you can eat. So, now we're going to go into the prophecy of Joseph's second dream in here. Genesis 37, 9, through 11 says, And he dreamed another dream and told to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. So now this comes the second dream. And in this dream is somewhat similar. It appears to be similar to the first one, but there's major differences. Behold, he says, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me, he says. Well, what is the connection in here? We see that in the first one was the sheaves that bowed down to him. Okay? And we see that in here with these sheaves, okay, it represents the resurrected the Mashiach. It also represents that there was their need for food. They will have to bow him for food. But how do we connect now the moon, the stars, and the and the sun? Says in here in verse 10, but when he told it to his father, so his dad is there now, right? And his to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Okay, he says, Shall I your mother and your brothers and thee come and bow ourselves to the ground before you. Jacob and here Israel makes a connection with the sun, moon, and stars, with him prophetically being the sun, his wife the moon, and the stars the brothers. Okay, because in ancient, the ancient, uh, especially the ancient sages, with some of the Kabbalists, they share that that's connected. That father is the son, Moon is the, 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 the wife, and so on and so forth. And of course, from this stems pagan mythology and all this kind of uh, uh, unrighteousness stuff. But nonetheless, we cannot neglect the fact that he did mention it in here. Why did he mention it himself? And by the way, notice what he says in here. He says in here, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? What's the problem with that statement? One big problem with that statement.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: The mother's dead. She's
1: dead.
0: That's where the connection comes. You see, he mentioned her when she was dead already. Look, let's share something pretty cool. Shadows of Messiah shares this Joseph's single star, surrounded by the adoration of all the heavenly, uh, heavenly, uh, sorry, all the heavenly dies, symbolizes the royal Messiah, son of David. So in the first resurrection, we see the Mashiach ben Yosef. In the second resurrection in here, or in this rather, the bowing down is talking about the Messiah ben David. What is the difference? Because the eleven were the sheaves, which is talking about his first coming, the disciples bowing down to him. But in here, it's more than just that. In here, it's talking about sun, moon, and stars. All of the day is going to be bowed down before him. So look what they say. In the future, all Israel, both living and dead, will bow before him. Philippians 2.9 says, Elohim therefore has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those of earth and of those under the earth. Those of earth and those under the earth. Jacob's wife was dead already. That's why he was saying, now we, me, your mother and your brothers, have come to bow down before you. I'm going to get to this in a minute here. And every time should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is the master to the glory of Elohim the Father. Look, Genesis 39, 9, 11. Then what happens? And his brothers were jealous of him, of course, but look what happened there. <laughs> but his father kept the saying in mind, it says.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This doesn't even give it the justice in what the Hebrew says. Look. In Hebrew verse 11 says, By a new bull, Achid, his <coughs> brother, Behavi and his father, but his father, Shemar. Now listen to this Shemar it Hadavar. In other words, he guarded and protected, but what word? The Aleph Taf. There's a messianic connection in here. That he is trying to present with the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to Joseph. He guarded it. In other words, he didn't think Joseph was Mashiach.
1: <laughs> he really
0: knew in here that wow, there's something. Look what the, the sages of Israel share besides this Shamar It Had the This is prophetically talking about the second coming of the Mashiach Ben David. Because the sheaves represent Messiah ben Yosef. Look, in the Likutez Shihots volume 35, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I don't know if you guys remember him, but he was a very famous rabbi. Look what he wrote about this passage right here. He said, Jacob was waiting impatiently for Messiah, the son of Joseph, the precursor of Messiah, son of David. This is an orthodox rabbi. He died probably about maybe eight years ago. So, very recently. This is very interesting. He was actually from Brooklyn.
1: Okay?
0: And they have, they have a big Jewish community in Brooklyn. You know, they're very, very big. But look what he says. Let's move on in here. Genesis Rabbah. Now, this is going back to the sages. Look what the sages saw. In Genesis Rabbah 8411, it says, Jacob taught that the resurrection of the dead would take place in his days. Why? Because it says that is why he said Genesis thirty-seven ten shall I, your mother, and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Your mother is dead, yet you say that I and your mother will come. See, <laughs> he made that connection. That's why he even mentioned the mother when she was already dead. According to Hazal. And here, he was already looking forward for the second coming of the Mashiach, folks. This is amazing. So now we're going to conclude with this, folks. Genesis 37, 18 to 20. They saw him from afar. So now Jacob dispatched him to go check on the brothers, okay? (laughs) Now he guards the word because he understands now for sure that Joseph is carrying a very, very highly mission. And it is important that uh, Joseph lives. You gotta think how the people taught that then. Their training of thought was, through this seed, right there, redemption comes to the world. That's what they were coming through their mind. If I don't preserve this seed, we're going to remain the way we are forever. Think about it. Because they were entrusted with the preservation of that seed so that the Messiah will come, the deliverer will come. Remember that prophetic word that was given through Noah? That in this one we will find rest for our souls. Mm-hmm. Okay, all these words, they had it in mind, folks. They knew that this preservation of the word and the sea was very important. You see, today, yes, parents, we do care for our children and the preservation of our children. But this that's why it says that he loved Joseph. That's why we hear that he loved Jacob. Because it was something more beyond just the love for a child. For them, it was just not just a child. You are above a child because you are the seed who's going to bring forth the deliverance for the entire world. Mm-hmm. That's why they were so particular about the seed. We read about it. They literally hedged and protected the seed. <clears throat> so look, Genesis thirty-seven eighteen. So they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them... They conspire against to kill him, it says. This is very, very amazing, folks. <clears throat> Joseph, is, Joseph is now coming up to the brothers. Because the father dispatched him. The brothers now, it says in here, that they saw him from afar. They saw him walking. And you've got to have a mental picture here. As you can imagine, Joseph walking his tunic of, of leadership. Walking towards the brothers that as they're, as he is coming and they spot him, they're like, okay, let's conspire to kill him. This rings volumes about the New Testament scriptures, folks. Look, it says in here, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. That word dreamer is holem the saint, holim, I'm sorry, holim, here comes, you, we can actually translate this also to the understanding, of, okay, here comes this Prophetic guy now with his prophecies.
1: <laughs>
0: we laugh, but that's exactly what Israel said. Whenever the prophet will come, I, here comes again, the Naladun's there, telling us how wrong we are. I don't want to hear it. See, we got to understand this, folks, because today, unfortunately, a lot of people in the body have the attitude of the brothers. They have the attitude of the brothers. They don't want to hear correction. They don't want to hear the truth. But it got to the point where they wanted to kill him. So he says, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. In other words, prophetically they're saying, he's given us this prophecy, we're going to alter the prophecy.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Thus says the Lord, well guess what, we're going to see to it, that the Lord's will doesn't get accomplished. <laughs> basically. That's basically what they're saying. Look. John eleven fifty three. Look what it says. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is Yeshua. This is the Pharisees who already were making plans to put him to death. That's in here. Yeshua, therefore, no longer walk openly among the Jews, he says. See, because he understood what happened to Joseph. <laughs> Look, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. And I'm going to end with this, folks. This, par- this is the best parable that literally testifies to when it says that he saw them from afar. And as he was approaching, they conspired to kill them. Now, we already share a scripture there that actually shows the Pharisees already plotting to kill him. But in this parable that Yeshua shared in here, it's very, very amazing. Let's, let's see in here. It says in Matthew 21, 33, it says, Hear another parable, he says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug in one president and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent the servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and kill another and stone another. It's very, very prophetic what's happening with Joseph. Again, he sent four other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. In this parable, is so amazing, because it says that finally, after he sends all the servants, and they're just basically murdering these people, he said, well, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. And look what it says in here. When he sends a son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, what happened in the story of Joseph? Joseph was coming from afar and the brothers saw him. The same thing in here. It says in here in the parable, when the tenants saw, the tenants is a representation of Israel. When they saw the son, they said to themselves, this is in the heir. This is important. Because the heir is not just the sea, the heir is the one who carries the birthright. This is the same thing that Esau despised that Jacob took. So it's saying in here, this is an heir. Come, let us what? Kill him. This rings exactly the story of Joseph. If he was walking in the field, they conspire against him. It says, Come, let us kill him, and we will have his inheritance. See, they didn't care the fact that he was an heir, meaning the birthright. They didn't care about the birthright. They care about the inheritance. Wasn't that the same thing that happened with Esau?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Esau didn't care about the birthright. Esau was just more focused on the inheritance. We got to wake up, people, because this is the reality of right? Today, many people are looking for the inheritance, but they don't want to carry the weight of the birthright can't have one without the other. You want the inheritance, then you need to carry the yoke of the birthright. You need to carry the yoke of carrying this seed, of carrying this faith, and continuing this faith to the next generation, folks. See, what we don't understand from this is that the heir who carries the birthright, just like Esau, who didn't want that birthright, Israel, the brothers of Joseph, didn't care for that birthright either, but they wanted the inheritance. See, there's a cyclical connection between Jacob and Esau and Joseph and the brothers now. Very similar. And if you notice one thing, they're both in exile too. Joseph is in exile, just like Jacob was in exile. And now we're going to go ahead and stop in here for today, because there's all the time that we have. But we're going to pick this up next week and see while Joseph is in exile. What was his life like because that shares a lot of testimony for us today who are in exile as well. See, there's hints of tones of exiles that we're going to be seeing over and over because most of our forefathers were in exile. The Bible is not just uh, bringing a picture of roses of the people in Israel because we're not there. It's not tangible for us. But most of the history of Israel is actually of Israel being in exile. And I believe that's important for us because we live in a time and a season that we are in exile and we need to make sure that our lives corresponds to the time of exile, not the time when they were in the land. There's a difference. As a matter of fact, even the Torah is different when you're in the land than when you're in exile. A lot of times we put in yoke on brothers and sisters when certain Torah is for the land, not for here. So we need to make sure that we are properly understanding this and put it in the proper context so that we can finally understand our walk here today. We see what Joseph, folks, he was in exile. His brother hated him. What can we expect today? To be hated. But that didn't stop him from fulfilling the call, number one. Number two, that didn't take away his joy. That's two things that we need to understand. And if anything, we find out later that he was actually exalted, even when he was in exile, folks. And that's what we're praying for in this time of this season, that we'll be exiled. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? It says they said to him, He will put those uh, wretcheds wretches into a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other or let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. See, this is really, really amazing. You realize what he just said in here? He said what he's gonna do to those tenants and the ones that killed them, the ones that kill the heir. He says what's going to happen to them, but I like 41. Then they, I'm mean, sorry, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This reminds me of that scripture, look right here. Yeshua said to them. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in his highs. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God, this is Matthew 21, 33, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This is amazing. You're not gonna handle the things of God properly, he will take it away from you, and he will give it to somebody who will. Now, this is not replacement theology. In no way, shape, or form, he's saying that the Jewish people are no longer God's people and that that tribe or that lineage is gone. He is specifically talking about a group, a religious group within the tribe who wanted to exalt themselves over God and it was shutting the kingdom of God in their faces. Those are the ones that he is saying, I will take the kingdom away from you and I will give it to somebody who actually will produce its fruits. What does that teach us also? That the kingdom is for everybody. It's not just for a specific genealogy. The kingdom is for whoever is willing to produce its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And we'll end with that for today, folks. Folks. As we embark in this journey, let us now carry that essence of Joseph now. Understanding that we're in foreign land, folks, and that we are in captivity. And in, through this season and this time, we will not waver to the left or to the right. Just like Joseph, we remain faithful to the Word of God and endure the pain and the trials that he endured. Amen? <laughs>
1: Yismar Echol Yair Arnei Vana Velechah Vichun Echol Yisadon They <laughs> Responsibility.
2: Huge responsibility. Huge. Mark, same. Didn't like it. Didn't
1: like.
2: <laughs> I served on a jury on a civil on a civil trial when my early twenties. The only time I've ever been on a jury it was. And it was a very interesting, very interesting experience. It didn't pay a whole lot, and it took a whole week. But it was a neat experience that mm-hmm. I that I now have in my repertoire of experiences. If you've never been on a jury. If you do get called, know that it's your duty, if you get chosen, to judge rightly, right? And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about judging rightly today. The civil suit that I was in, real briefly, was a, was a construction company uh, suing a, a taxi company that had had them build a new facility for them. Um, long story short, the, the taxi company didn't want to finish paying because of some of the the, the, the work that they said was insufficient. And, and it was a little petty, really petty stuff. For example, they said that there was a grass chute that was growing up between the foundation of the, of the building and the pavement. Well, there's a separation there. There's nothing you can do about that. We ended up finding for the construction company and told the taxi company that they needed to finish paying. Because the things that they were, they were suing, they're being sued over, the, the reason they were holding the money was very petty and it, and it wasn't righteous. I have to portion today, Hashem pronounces judgment upon the children of Israel for the unjust treatment of Joseph. Something that they continue to do, the children of Israel continue to do many generations later. We start off in Genesis chapter 37, verses 26 to 28. And Yehuda said to his brothers, What would we gain if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us not let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened, and men, Midianite traders, passed by. So they pulled Yosef up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Yosef to meet Zayim. That 20 pieces of silver is very important for us to understand when we talk a little bit about it today. However, think about this. It was not the actual sale that aroused Hashem's wrath but rather the condition of the sale. Amos refers to the indignity shown to Joseph and the insensitivity towards his feelings being sold for an inexpensive pair of shoes. It is believed, and I'll read a little bit later, that that each of the brothers got two pieces of silver, the 10 brothers, that sold Joseph into the into down to Mitzrayim. And each of them got two silver coins, but but they bought each one of them a pair of shoes. Amos 2, verses 6 through 7 says, Thus says Hashem, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I do not turn it back, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals, who crush the head of the poor ones in the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the meek." A lot of what I'm going to read you I got um, on, on the internet. I used uh, uh, Chabad for a lot of it. Um, and so a lot, of the, a lot of what I'm quoting here, what I'm reading is quotations. Sforno explains that the brothers truly perceived that their life was in serious danger as long as Joseph remained in their surroundings. Now, their lives as those who are unrighteous. And we have to look at the way they were feeling about Joseph from the unrighteous viewpoint. Because Joseph was, he's known as Joseph HaTzadik. He is the righteous one. Okay, So they are in their unrighteousness looking at Joseph and he's a threat to their way of life. He is a threat to their unrighteousness, their revelry, okay? After closely following his actions and anticipating the outcome of his inexcusable attitude and behavior towards their unrighteousness, the brothers found it necessary to protect themselves from his inevitable (laughs) attack of them. Although they totally misread the entire situation from the start, it can be argued that their precautionary measures were somewhat justified and permissible. However, Spharno draws our attention to their insensitivity during these trying moments. In Genesis 42-21, the brothers are quoted to have reflected on their decision and said, and it's a quote from Genesis 42-21, but we are guilty for observing his pain when he pleaded with us and he turned a dear ear to it. We read that when they have come to Joseph, and Joseph has told them, Go back to your father and return with the youngest brother, and I shall give to you what you desire. I shall give you the grain that you need. They're now beginning to realize their own persecution through all of this is because they had sold Joseph into slavery and they had done it so in, in, without any sensitivity. Even they faulted themselves for their insensitivity toward their brother. When he pleaded for his life, they should have reconsidered and adjusted their harsh decision. It is this insensitivity that the prophet refers to when focusing upon the sale for shoes. Chazal explained that the brothers sold Joseph for the equivalent of 20 silver dollars and (coughs) each brother purchased a pair of shoes with his portion of the money, two silver dollars. One of the most moving narratives to emerge from the Jewish history of martyrdom is the account of the 10 martyrs. the heart-rending narrative describing in graphic detail the deaths of 10 Mishnaic era Torah luminaries, who were slaughtered on the altar of senseless hatred. Hashem chose the illustrious era of the Tanaim to respond to the offense. That's the, that, that is, these, these men who who study the Tanakh, who created the Midrash, the Mishnah, and the, uh, the, the Chachma, <coughs> and the Kumash. They are the ones that put all of these discussions together. They had these discussions to talk about scripture and to understand the deeper levels of the scripture. During those times, a quorum of prominent scholars provided over Israel, which personified the lessons of brotherhood and sensitivity. Notice, they personified the lessons of brotherhood and sensitivity. An elite group was chosen for this task. Ten great sages were brutally tortured and executed by the Romans, although two of them were killed at the time of the Khurban, the others during Sha'as Hashmad, all ten are grouped together in the liturgy of Tishkaal and Yom Kippur. The Midrash states that all ten were killed as a divine national punishment for the sale of Joseph by his ten brothers. Wow. There is some disagreement, however, among the rabbis as to who the, the ten really were, the ten sages, and when they were killed. The widely accepted source for the account of the ten martyrs, the famous poetic lamentation of Midrash, Elah, Kerah seems to indicate that the ten sages were all summoned by a Roman governor and killed at once. However, most agree that the ten sages could not have been killed at the same time, or even in near secession, because they were not contemporaries. All other accounts of the ten martyrs conclude that the two of them were killed during the Great Revolt, which was staged by the Jews against the Roman oppressors between the years 66 and 74 of the current era, while the rest were killed in the bar. Kochba revolt some 60 years later, between 132 and 136. So all of this happened during the the, the destruction of the Second Temple. During the Great Revolt, which ultimately led to the destruction of the Second Temple, Jewish blood was spilled in barbaric ways and at staggering rates. Yet the final blow to the morale of the people was dealt with the tragic martyrdom of the Jewish leaders, who were publicly tortured and executed. According to Ele Eskera, and thus according to most opinions, the story of the Ten Martyrs has its roots in an incident involving the Roman prefect of Jerusalem, the wicked Firas, Excuse me, Ternus Rufus, who was well-versed in Jewish literature. This man studied Jewish mm-hmm. literature. And, and we're not talking about just the Torah and the Tanakh, he studied everything he could likely get his hands on so that he would know the deep levels. He had been learning the passage in Exodus that states, as we read in Shemot 21.16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, and, and the victim is found in his possession, he shall surely be put to death. Turnus Rufus immediately realized that his interpretation of this law offered him a golden opportunity to humiliate the Jewish faith and murder its chief exponents. Turnus Rufus summoned Rabbi Shimon bin Gamliel and his colleagues and presented a question before them. What is the Jewish law with regards to he who kidnaps a man from the Jewish nation and sells him into slavery? And the rabbis replied that the Torah mandates that such a man be put to death. If so, continued Turnus Rufus, where are your forebearers who sold their brother into slavery? (laughs) Had they been here, I would have prosecuted them before your eyes. As for you, accept the decree of heaven, for since the times of the twelve tribes, there have never been ten sages of your stature alive at one time. Take upon yourself to die in accordance with your law, for Joseph, the son of Jacob, was kidnapped and sold by his ten brothers, and their punishment has never been exacted. The holy men listened. And rather than dismissing this claim as a mere pretext for murder, rather than pleading for their lives, they asked the wicked prefect to grant them three days to verify whether their martyrdom had indeed been sanctioned by the heavenly court. Of course, this is all included in the Midrash. It says, Rabbi Ishmael, the high priest, invoked the holy name of God, which it is prohibited to utter or write under normal circumstances, according to Jewish tradition. And ascended to heaven to ascertain the verity of the decree. Rabbi Ishmael was greeted by the angel Gabriel, who said to him, "Ishmael, my son, I swear by your life that I have heard from behind the veil that ten sages have been delivered to be killed by the wicked kingdom." But why so? Rabbi Ishmael asked, and the angel confirmed what Turnus Rufus had said—that they were to stand in place of the ten brothers who sold Joseph into slavery and suffer their punishment. Upon his return to his colleagues, Rabbi Ishmael related what he had heard from Gabriel the angel and urged his fellow sages to accept that this was a heavenly decree. Imagine for a moment had Hashem exacted the punishment upon the ten brothers. Would we have had Israel? Would we have had the twelve tribes? We would not. The ten brothers and Benjamin left behind would never have gone down to Egypt. They would have had no reason to go to Egypt. And in that case, where then would Joseph be? Eighty years later after ruling. Even after the decree had been issued. No, oh, hang on, let me go back. In their unrighteousness, God decided He would use those who were ultimately extremely righteous to exact the punishment upon them. Those who were walking as such examples to the rest of the Jewish nation, they were exemplified. They were the perfect, they were the poster child for Judaism. So even after the decree had been issued, the martyrs remained steadfast in their adherence to the Torah, which only enraged Turnus Rufus further. Eleazar describes in detail how each of the sages was killed while he was in the middle of performing a mitzvah, a commandment, and thus returning, returned his soul to her maker in purity and holiness. Elijah the prophet came to collect their souls when they departed their bodies and defiant proclamation announced their individual merit to the world. The murder of the ten martyrs marked the beginning of the end of Jewish sovereignty in the Holy Land and the subsequent exile of the Jewish people into foreign Onto foreign soil. This is the exile that in envelops us until today, and from which we yearn to be redeemed with the immediate coming of Mashiach. The, names, the supposed names of the ten rabbis, Yishmael bin Elisha, the high priest, Rabbi Shimon bin Ganiel uh, Hazakin, Rabbi Hanina bin Tradion, Rabbi Akiva, maybe a name you've heard before, I'm going to talk briefly about Akiva. Rabbi, bin, uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, Rabbi Kutzpik, uh I'm not even going to try to say his last <laughs> name. Rabbi Yeshevav Hasopher, Rabbi Elazar ben Shamuav. Rabbi Hanina ben Chakinai. And Rabbi Yehuda ben Dama. So Rabbi Akiva. Briefly. The greatest of the Tanaim Rabbi Akiva approached the level of Moses, of humble origins and a descendant of converts, proselytes. Rabbi Akiva was an ignorant shepherd until the age of 40. However, his wealthy employer's daughter, Rachel, saw his refinement of character and potential for greatness and proposed to marry him if he would study Torah. Her father, not in favor of the marriage, forbade the couple the use of his property, and as a result, they lived in abject poverty. So that he could study properly, Rachel sent Rabbi Akiva away. did not see him for 24 years.
1: Until he returned as
2: a great sage accompanied by 24,000 disciples. As Rabbi Akiva indefatigably served the Jewish people as a true sage, Rabbi Akiva... He tra- uh, traveling all over the Jewish world to aid outlying communities in spiritual need and to raise funds for the poor and for Torah institutions. At that time, he suffered a tragedy that would have broken a lesser man. The eradication of his life's work. All 24,000 students died in a divine plague for not showing each other proper respect. Undaunted, Rabbi Akiva taught five new students who became the nucleus of the Torah leadership for the next generation. In a famous story related in the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva publicly flouted the Roman decree against Torah study. The Romans arrested him, flayed his flesh with iron combs. Mm. Impervious to the pain, not feeling a thing, Rabbi Akiva recited the Shema, Mm. joyously anticipating the opportunity to sanctify God's name with his life. As he was pronouncing the word Echad, which signifies the unity of God, Rabbi Akiva's soul departed, Although his murder was a tragedy, Rabbi Akiva's sacrifice who served as an inspiration for countless Jewish martyrs throughout the centuries. an wow. amazing man. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Shimon bin Gamliel Hanasi and Rabbi Ishmael Kohen Gadol. <coughs> These two martyrs were slain during the time of the Chaban, 65 years before the others which means it was around the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. When each sage begged to be killed first so as not to witness the execution of his distinguished colleague, the Romans sadistically cast lots, and Rabbi Shimon was murdered first. As Rabbi Ishmael was bemoaning the loss of his close friend, the executioner's daughter, attracted by the rabbi's physical beauty, employed her father father, to keep him alive. When the Roman refused, his daughter asked instead that Rabbi Ishmael's facial skin be removed so that she could always gaze at his beauty. Oh. This unspeakably barbaric request was fulfilled while he was still alive. Gosh. As a further insult, the skin was kept in Roman storage to be worn by legions as for good luck during battle. Now listen to this. Rabbi Ishmael's face was also displayed in a ceremony performed once every 70 years in the streets of Rome celebrate the ascendancy of Esau over his brother Jacob. Wow. So a connection to last week's and the week before Parsha's.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So here's our takeaway. Deuteronomy 16:18 through 20. Appoint judges and officers within all your gates, which Hashem your Elohim is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous right ruling. Do not distort right ruling, do not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow righteousness, righteousness alone, so that you live and inherit the land which Hashem, your Elohim, is giving you. Yeshua spoke on this matter. Both Matthew and Luke, Matthew 23:23, 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Because you tied the mint and the anise and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, the right ruling and the compassion and the belief. These need to have been done without neglecting the others. Luke's wording is a little bit different, but he says, Woe to you Pharisees because you tied the mint and the rue and every plant and pass by the right ruling and the love of Elohim. These you should have done without leaving the others. So I think it's important for us to realize that the, one of the most important things that we can do in our lives and in our walk and its representatives, as ambassadors for the kingdom of God, that we rule rightly. With our brothers and with those outside of covenant. That we are impartial at all times. Because Hashem is always impartial with every soul that walks this earth. Uh-huh.
3: Uh-huh. Sure Amen. Amen. All right, now the stories of the forefathers were written down for our instruction so that we could take an example from their lives and apply it to us today. Because these stories are not just for our entertainment, you know, so you can go watch a movie, and two weeks later you've completely forgotten about it. These are here to teach us how to live our lives and to get through problems that inevitably we are going to go through. So what we can do is we can take encouragement from their stories, Learn how to act out righteously, how to walk the righteous path in all these afflictions, and how to always keep the encouragement to get through to the end. And uh, a part of Joseph's life that we're going to be covering right here is in Acts uh, 7-9. The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So it says here that you know Joseph went through a lot. But it says he delivered out of, out of all of his afflictions. You know, we can see this is a theme through scripture. because We can see in Psalms 34:17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now we can say Joseph had many afflictions, right? And Joseph was a righteous man. So, this describes him pretty well. So, the lesson we can get out of this is if we walk a righteous path, we're going to go through some troubles too. But he has promised he will deliver us from all these afflictions. So, now the question is so that we're not caught off guard, what does this look like? Because, you know, we're all familiar with Joseph. You know, he went through all this, and then at the end of his story, you know, he got elevated he got lifted up he basically got delivered once and for all from all the last of his afflictions now yes that does apply to us too because on the last day those who are the tail will be raised up to the head Hallelujah. so yes this does apply to us but remember joseph had a life up up until that point just like us before the last great day there's time is going on before that. And right now, we are in the time before the last great day. So we have a great thing to look forward to. We have this great reward, as we see with Joseph. But what about everything else? Because it says, Hashem delivered him out of all of his afflictions. He just didn't say, and then I delivered, delivered him from his affliction. You know, referring to the last great raising up. It was through his whole life. And as we see here in the previous verse, the patriarchs moved his enemies, sold Jesus, Joseph into Egypt, and but God was with him. So God was with him from the very beginning. He was with him every step of the way up until the last great moment when he was raised up. So we're going to take a look at this. <clears throat> Genesis 37-21. And Reuben, this is when they were plotting to kill Joseph. They saw him coming. And, you know, and they're like, let's kill him! So remember, God is with him at this moment. Genesis thirty-seven twenty-one. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and said, "Let us not kill him." So Joseph was delivered from death here. So now we all have these great ideas on what deliverance from our afflictions is like. You know, we can imagine Ed McMahon showing up at our door with a big million-dollar check. You know, you know, and then you know all this great stuff coming to us. You know, and just life is really good at this point. Just this fairy tale thing. You know, we get a pot of gold, and we get all of our wishes come true we kind of get these fantasy ideas on what our deliverance is going to look like. <clears throat> but remember, we're not the ones in control. Because sometimes little fantasies that we're making in our heads on how we should be delivered will actually lead to our death. <laughs> Some of the things we want, kind of like a little kid. I want to go touch it! I want to go play! No, no, no. If a child got everything he wanted, every moment of every day, he would eventually lead himself to his own death. Yes. Right. <laughs> now, same thing with us. We are children... <laughs> In God's eyes, we're lower than children, and we're worms. So, if we got all of our heart's desires, if we got delivered in the way that we think we should, it would not only lead to our death, but possibly the death of others. Let's see how deliverance worked here in this case. After he was delivered from death, it says, And Reuben said unto him, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. Not what Joseph was expecting, right? You know, he's expecting you know, some guy to run in a big steed you know, with a big sword and rescue him, and then he was gonna ride off into the sunset and life was gonna be perfect from that point forward. It's like, no. But Joseph, Joseph probably didn't even know they were gonna kill him. All Joseph knew that he's got thrown into the pit. Now, if Joseph got rescued in the way he wanted to get rescued, he would have never been taken to Egypt which means that his whole family would have starved to death. And if he was with them because he never gotten taken to Egypt, he would have died too. So not only did he deliver him and save his life in this one moment by throwing him into the pit, he saved not only Joseph's life, but he saved his entire family. He probably saved millions and millions of people because not only were the people of Canaan saved, but all of Egypt and the surrounding countries. So when he was thrown into the pit... Contrary to what Joseph thought was of how he was going to get delivered, it actually brought life. You know, and this could be a metaphor, too, for our lives. Because, you know, if you read through the Psalms, the pit is used as a metaphor, oftentimes, for just the hardships of life, you know, traps people set for us, or just hard times we go through. And while you're in the pit, it seems horrible. You know, because, you know, you're in the, you're in the dark, you know. Depending who is in the pit before you, it might smell a little bad. But, but the pit is going to bring you life eventually if you're there with God's plan. Because remember, all Joseph sees is the pit. Remember, he's a righteous man, so he understands in Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Joseph didn't know that he was going to be taken to Egypt and he was going to be elevated. And this affliction he was going to was going to literally save his entire family. He didn't know this at the time. But we know that Joseph was righteous from the beginning, and he held on to his righteousness all the way through. So even though things in the flesh looked really bad, he knew that things were going to work out good for him. That's how he, how come he was able to hold on and keep practicing God's righteousness. And we can see that through the scriptures. Whenever an opportunity for sin showed up, instead of taking advantage of the sin... He took advantage of the opportunity to practice righteousness. So all things work out together for good. What was the result of him going into the pit? Well, in Genesis 39, 1-2, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So, and you're." When you're down in the dumps, when things aren't looking so good, it's just because we can't see five seconds ahead of us. But Hashem has declared everything from the very beginning. He knows what's going to happen. So just because things aren't going in the direction we think they should, doesn't mean they're not going in the best possible direction. Because all this was guided by Hashem that brought Joseph into this position that he was elevated we see in Psalms 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by Hashem, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast down, for Hashem upholds his hand. So, no matter what kind of problems you're going through, you need to remember, he's the one guiding your steps. If you are following righteousness, he's got everything under control. It's kind of like Daniel sitting in the pit, you know, there's lions everywhere. When we're sitting there in the flesh, the lion could be anything. It could be our bots, it could be our bills. it could be whatever we want. But we see the lion. All we see is this great big head roaring at us. But we don't see the leash that's holding them back. Mm-hmm. Because no matter what's going on, Hashem's got the leash on everything. Yes. So don't focus on the lion roaring at you. Focus on the person who's holding the leash. Because he's got it under control. <clears throat> and I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. Because even if you do have tremendous faith, you, know, you will have this peace around you during these afflictions. But... It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Because while you're in the middle of it, in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems payf- uh, painful rather than pleasant. But it yields peaceful fruit and of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it says you've been trained by this. You know, the disciplining and the afflictions. Because have you ever been with, you know, you know every one of us has probably met someone like this. But the wor- if you know someone, the world's just crashing down around them. All these catastrophes are going on. But they're just they're doing the same efforts anybody else would do to fix the problem, but they seem okay about it. They're just they're just happy. They're like, you know, I'll just do this and it'll work out. You know, I'm not gonna stress about the future that's going on. You know, and in the meantime you could be freaking out and running around or somebody next to you could be doing that, but then this other person is just totally calm, aware that things are gonna work out okay. And the reason they get to that point is because they have been through previous afflictions. They have been trained by it, and they have known that through these afflictions, through being thrown into the pit, they will be brought back out. Things will be okay, and when you're walking in righteousness, all these things work out for good. And uh, one thing we need to remember, too, is that just because you're going through hardship, you know, you, you can't just buckle down and say, you know, I'm living in sin, but these hardships right here are just a Teach me to keep living in sin. So, let's look at some examples in 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So it's saying if you do something bad, if you're living in rebellion and you're living in sin and you get punished for it, there's no reward for it. It's just punishment. But it says if you do good and you suffer for it, well, this is, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In 1 Peter 3:14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, Joseph, right? Now he was giving a report, he was serving his father, he was doing his father's will, and because of that, he was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Joseph was blessed for it quite a lot. So now, if we suffer afflictions for righteousness' sake, as bad as they might be, we will also be blessed in the same way Joseph was. Alleluia. Might not look okay at the moment, because, you know, the current affliction, you know, all you see is the stuff around mm-hmm. you. If we can't see what's ahead of us. You just need to remember, our steps are ordered by Hashem. Alleluia. So, <clears throat> I love Apostle Paul. He really sums things up really well. It's kind of confusing. But if you step back and understand what he's talking about, I mean, he's just gold. So let's go to Second Corinthians one, <clears throat> verses three through ten. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is beautiful here. This is like the story of Joseph, because he went through a lot of affliction. And But God was with him the whole way, comforting him and encouraging him, keeping him going, so that Joseph could comfort others in any affliction that they had gone through. Because Joseph went through all those trials, he went through all, that, all those testings, all that, all that work, is so that he could bring the same comfort to the people that God had given to him. So it's the same thing with us. When we are going through our afflictions, it's training us to keep that peace, to keep that calm, That way when we have a brother or a sister that is going through the afflictions that we had gone through previously, we can sit there and we can say, you can make it. And this is how. Is you rely on God himself because he's the one that's going to grab your hand and pull you out of the pit. And you need to have the confidence that he will do it. And when we go through our afflictions and we get raised out of the pit, we're going to develop this confidence in Hashem that no matter which pit we are thrown into, He's going to pull us out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once we develop that confidence, that's when we get the peace that we can sit there and endure and just wait for Hashem to work on His time and not ours. Mm-hmm. And then we can pass on that same peace, that same confidence and encouragement to our brothers and sisters around us. So if you ever go into an affliction, once you get through it, don't be selfish and hold it to yourself. I mean, <laughs> use that to go help the people around you. Amen. And it goes on. For as we share abundantly in Messiah's sufferings, so through Messiah we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Remember, we don't live in a vacuum. We're not hermits. We dwelt together. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now Joseph, I can imagine he was put in several situations where he felt that same way, that they were burdened beyond their strength. Joseph probably felt that himself. But it taught him to rely on God completely, and that's how come everything worked out as well as it did. It wasn't because of Joseph's great genius and great abilities. It was because he relied on Hashem. Because Joseph couldn't have planned to be thrown in the pit and sold to Ishmaelite slavers to be purchased by, you know, Potiphar to be betrayed by his wife to be thrown in the prison. And I mean, just the, the whole—he couldn't have done that. But because he relied on God, the orchestrator was able to work through him. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That is really the lesson we can get here from Joseph too. Is you know, these afflictions it's like we're in a battlefield here. You know, we're still gonna have to go through these humps, we're gonna have to cross that mountain, we're gonna have to fight this battle, we're gonna have to cross that river. But we have to remember that when we're walking on the path He has set before us, He will deliver us from everything we've gone through. He will deliver us through everything we're going through. And He will deliver us through everything that is going to come forward. So in conclusion of all this, the Lord delivers the righteous from all afflictions. So now we understand it. It's not our idea of how we're delivered. It's His. Because we need to accept that we are not always delivered on our terms. Because our terms could possibly lead us down not a good place. It might look pretty on the surface, but man, when you open your it's probably a little bad. So, and walking a godly path means that our steps are ordered by the Lord, and all things work out for good. doesn't matter what we see. It matters what he sees. If we see bad, he just might be seeing things perfect. So remember that. It's not what we see. It's him. So when things are <clears> looking <throat> rough, we need to remember that He has delivered us and He will deliver us and He will deliver us again. So, on and on. I mean, Apostle Paul said it. And don't be selfish. Don't keep it all to yourself. Share it with the people around you. Let them know this. Repeat it again and again. We need to exhort each other. We need to encourage each other every day. And that is our New Testament connection. <clears throat>